why is it that to create a more human-centric e-commerce experience, all we had to do was chop the head off? Today, we talked about headless commerce. Why is it so hot right now? What's going on with it? Uh, are you ready for it? Why, why would you move to it? And what's that journey like? I'm joined by Furkan Munir, who is the head of product at Fabric. You can find Fabric at fabric.inc. They're a headless commerce platform. We have no in, in invested interest in them other than talking to interesting folks that are playing in this space. Furkan has a great point of view from his years at Groupon and now at Fabric, and he's really pushing the boundary on a really human-centric roadmap for headless commerce. So please welcome Furkan. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint, the show for C-Suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Furkan, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you uh, for having me here, George. Really excited to get this going. Yeah, yeah. Today we're going to talk headless commerce, which um, is not new, but we were talking earlier about how Forbes uh, wrote an article about the tremendous amount of investment that's going into headless commerce right now. Um, and I'm curious if you have any hypotheses on why now? Why is there such a push into headless commerce right now? I think over the last uh, two years, um, I think with the pandemic hitting us, you know, recession now on its way, I think the businesses to go digital has, you know, accelerated. And that is one area where I think headless can really solve a, a lot of the problems which conventional retail businesses were facing. And especially with, you know, the cost of technology, right? Like, you know, headless provides a very, mm. I would say, easy way into scaling and growing this business. So I think all the right catalysts are there now for businesses to take that next step. And then headless provides that, I would say, architecture and that uh, path to move forward with, with that technology. There's a combination of, of many technologies maturing at the same time that organizations want to be more flexible than they've ever wanted to be, right? You know, over the, over the pandemic, I, I would imagine tremendous, and some of them have been our clients, where they wanted to be extremely flexible during the pandemic, and then they realized that their monolithic systems were not set up for that, right? They, they want to go in different directions, but they're just, they're bound by it. You know, I'm curious, what, what catalysts do you, do you typically see when people are, are saying, hey, we're, we're now finally ready to move over to headless commerce? Just taking a, a step back or maybe like trying to answer that, that question which you were raising, right? Why yeah. and, and what did uh, businesses learn, right? So one thing with the monolithic systems, right? Like let's say you're an, uh, a merchant operating with ten or uh, thousands of stores. You have warehousing. Now pandemic hit, everything is in a lockdown. What? How can you service orders, right? Like from all mm -hmm. your store, you want to utilize that inventory. With monolithic system, buy online, pick up in store, cups of delivery became a major problem, right? Like, and retailers did not know how they can support this, right? And that's where headless commerce like really supports that. You can plug in a, a module um, very easily and say, hey, by the way, for all my online orders, right? Here is my aggregated inventory across all my stores. Where is the customer location? And based on that, start fulfilling. And you're selling even if your store is let, not operating at 100% capacity or you weren't allowing walk-ins to come in. So that is one of the, the I would say, um, catalyst as, as how businesses learn to evolve. It's, it's like everything is on sale, right? Like um, even though you're, you're shut down. So that's where, you know, businesses went back and say, oh my God, right? Like simple stuff, cross-border shipping as well. I have a lot of inventory across the, the border, like between Canada and US is a classic example. 
um, you know, you don't want to stop selling. Canada had a, you know, um, literally the supplies were not coming in. But however, you could still ship stuff from the US. And that's where, you know, businesses like Amazon really took off, right? Because they could do that with ease. You could go onto Amazon.com and you can literally put, put in your address from Canada and then it will show you options. Enabling that, that cross-border option, again, was one of the, the things which, you know, retailers could not do with their monolithic systems. It's probably also another example of where the pandemic just put a magnifying glass on an issue that was already there. Because I think what you saw or what we definitely saw is you'd see um, you, maybe it was a B2B organization that they wanted to pivot to B2C. And they need to do it fast. So they just spun up a second system, maybe a second monolithic system in parallel with their existing system, right? Or maybe, and maybe a third or a fourth. And now there's a whole bunch of batch, batch ingestion and like batch integrations where it's a lot of CSVs that are floating around there and spreadsheets and, you know, it's integrated, but it's not really integrated. And now that things are settling in, they're saying, geez, what a mess we have on our hands right now. How can we, we simplify this mess? And, and that was not a pandemic issue. You know, anytime you saw, you know, through mergers and acquisitions, you have multiple brands within one umbrella or, you know, you, you made the decision to move from B to B to B to C or B to C to B to B. This is a pattern that's been going on for decades. Um, and now, you know, I think now it's the, the sweet spot of everyone's probably both feeling the pain and then the headless technologies are maturing all, all at the same time. I think what you just, um, you know, uh, stated over there, I think that is why headless was like it, it, it was born or it was like it came into picture is the cost of, um, you know, technology. How do you have a single playbook which defines your technology strategy, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. a lot of tech costs and especially, um, you know, merge and acquisition. How do you can bring, um, you know, different parts of your business into one tech stack? Uh, same with companies which operate across multiple, uh, you know, ge geolocations, right? You have a business in mm -hmm. Europe, the set setup is pr primarily very different. Um, you operate in, in, in uh, U U US or North America, the op operation and setup is very different, right? How do you consolidate that into a single tech stack, right? With monolithic system, you're right, right? They spun up multiple instances and they were working, but then, you know, the overall technology cost was so over. Uh, so much right like that they, they needed to do something which was drastic and that's where headless commerce or I would say SaaS and all of the cloud uh, you know solution came into existence right because they provide that that uh, you know platform for companies to reduce and manage that cost in a much more better way. Yeah, and it makes it easier to select your your solutions. Here's I love stories from the trenches, right? We have one where we're evaluating e-commerce platforms, and it, and it's a global organization, and they need to accept Boletos as a form of payment. And for those don't know it, those people who don't know what that is, it's it's a ticket based cash system in Brazil because a lot of Brazilians don't have bank accounts, so they use cash. They go to the corner store, they get a ticket, it has a barcode. And so now you're you now all of these e-commerce systems you're looking at you're now whittling it down you're like well we have to choose one that supports boletos and that might not be the best platform that's out there right whereas in a headless uh, environment you can choose really what is best for us and we don't have to go to like a lowest common denominator or perhaps over purchase because maybe the the only ones that support all those global things are like the super duper complex enterprise that you don't really need at this point right 
Definitely. I think that, you know, again, brings up another you know thing around payments as well. Like payments is a, is a big problem for a lot of e-commerce companies out there, right? Like what, with all these evolution wallets, right? Like people feel much more secure using their own, um, you know, they don't want to share the credit card details or debit card details with the service provider, right? Like they'll go and they'll store it in Apple Pay, Google Pay or uh, PayPal and which makes it very easy for the customer with one single ch checkout and if you um, analyze um, you know the conversion um, on these checkouts right for single click right like Amazon um, you know is, is a you know it's leading it but any other retailer who has on the e-commerce side has done that is seeing a, a massive uh, you know I would say increase in conversion on those particular uh, customers whereas like where you you have a conventional input of credit card like people are still they'll go in and if there are the form is too big or too long on on the end of the checkout they, mm -hmm. they'll simply sure they, they won't complete the transaction so I think you know having these um, technologies and these integrations um, available to to customers and completing that digital experience I, I think is very very important now it is. It is. One of the other big catalysts we see for, for moving to headless uh, is the merchandising, the storytelling. You know, there's so many brands and they tell stories in very different ways. And even if you if you're a multi-brand company, each brand tells their stories in, in, a, in a different way. And, um, you know, being all being forced into the same container of, oh, well, you can have these product sets, you can have the, this imagery, maybe you can have a video. It's very limiting. And I think that that's truly where brands can find the, the true value and, and demonstrate the value to their, their consumers is when they can tell their story, but tell it their way. You know, I'm, I'm curious your experience from a product management perspective. I think that is like very important. And again, that's where like, you know, a lot of people don't maybe uh, that matter understand, right? Like headless in a true form. It's actually, you know, decoupling the back end from front end. And what you just uh, over there is like the presentation layer, right? Like, um, and with mm -hmm. monolithic systems, right? Like it is very limiting because you're using a template, right? You cannot uh, customize your storefront experience. And with certain personalized brand, right? Especially within, um, you know, furniture, we saw a lot of use cases, right? With uh, furniture partners really want to, you know, tailor that experience for their, their customers. They want to have collections and pages set up, which give you a whole, let's say, living room, right? Like from all the way from a, um, a, a sofa to curtains to carpet to uh, a coffee table in the middle, right? And even some example, they even throw in a TV, which will allow you to like complete the whole collection. A customer can do one single click to purchase that, right? So that is how brands are, are seeing these things work. And with headless, this becomes very easy because on the back end, you, uh, you know, you can compose different services to provide or build that experience on the front end. You have an option of going limitless, almost boundless in terms of what design and what custom experience you want to give to your customers. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, that limits, the limitless aspect is an interesting one because, um, well, you know, you're at Fabric, so you obviously love head, headless commerce, and I, I do as well, just given my history and, and the work that we do with our clients. But um, I also hate to see someone choose the platform that's wrong for them that they're not ready for yet. And I do think there, there are, you know, this isn't to say that monolithic systems are necessarily bad. There's a time and a place, right? So, like, if you, if you need to do, if you want to be able to expand and have that flexibility and tell a better story. But if you are limited on resources or if you're hyper-focused on what it is that you're doing and you know that your roadmap's not going to change that much, it might make sense to get to, to uh, you know, adopt the processes and the structure of a monolithic system. And I think the important part is, is for people to realize um, when they're ready 
you know, when they're ready to move outside of that world or, or if, if they know that they're not going to want to be locked into a monolithic system. Um, so it's not bad. It's just it's just different, I think. Right. I, I totally agree. And it's the yeah. size of your business. Right. I think mm. it's a very important factor. It's like how what is your operating capacity? Right. Um, what is the you know how do you want to scale your business and 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 that scale will drive what changes you need to make right up to a certain let's say um, you know businesses operating with 10 million 20 million even up to 50 million in gmv um you know are, are you know very they can you know operate with with uh, i would say monolithic systems because they have small operational teams which do multiple tasks right so having mm. a, a closed system which allows you to do end-to-end right um functions is is very good but as you grow bigger right and you want to have like dedicated customer service team you need to have a dedicated logistical team you need to have a dedicated operational team then that's where um, you know headless commerce really plays a, a, a very important part because you can you know either it, 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 uh, implement or you know bring in a full end-to-end system or you can take one service out of a, a system and you know and plug it in right to to build the the function you need to build so that's where I, I would see like you know when businesses are evaluating they need to see how big or what is their expansion plan and based on that right they, they need to take that decision with some data yeah yeah and, and you need a certain maturity to your internal engineering teams and, and and product teams as well you know I think when I was trying to think about why headless is getting so much investment now one of the things I thought about also is I was part of the team that did toysrest.com and we, we built it fully custom and then we moved it to Amazon which was at the time it was kind of head like the one of the first headless platforms at that point. And then, you know, we built more mature systems with microservices. And it I found in the early days of microservices, it got messy. There were so many dependencies and you couldn't manage releases. And there's just, you know, the the, the tangled, it was like the tangled web of um, of Christmas lights that have been left in the garage over, over a year. And I think now there's so much maturity to the software development lifecycle. There's so much maturity in the development operations and release management that's out there that you can really orchestrate and, and stay away from from those those dependencies. You know, I'm curious, like, how are you, you know, from from your roadmap and what you guys released? Have you seen maturity over over time as far as, you know, how people can manage those dependencies? Definitely. Um, I, I think one of the, the key things to understand is like the way we have been building our technology is like we, we're taking a focus on being modular, right? And what does mm. it mean being modular? Uh, composability is another one, right? So we break down the services into individual, uh, I say, components, right? And then on top of it, right, like we'll put them together to complete a, a product, right? So for OMS, right, for instance, it's a combination of, um, you know, inventory management system, right? It's a combination of order orchestration. And then you have your fulfillment uh, logic, which sits on top of it, right? And it allows you to manage different rules, right? Where the order gets fulfilled as opposed to where the inventory is or where the customer is. So all of that, right, coming together as, as an experience, right? Like that, you know, modularity allows you to do that. A retailer who just wanted inventory aggregation can just use inventory. As a, as, a, as a service, right? Does not have to mm. use order orchestration. So release management, um, you know, across when you have individual services becomes um, a lot more easier because then you're managing and you can build on features. But where you, you it gets a little bit tricky that you have to, you know, make sure that there is enough, um, you know, mapping in the way you set your rules or how do you orchestrate the services. So having that orchestration service or, or, or that, um, you know, ability to, to manage those services in the way or transformation is, is really, really important. So if you have proper tooling to do that, you can, but if you're not, then you, you, you might end up into a problem where 
you know, if you update one service and it's not talking properly to another one, like you, you could have the same problems as a monolithic system. Yeah. That data orchestration is so key. I, I can tell you after 20, almost 25 years of doing this, I can maybe count on one hand the number of legacy systems I've seen fully go away. Like it always lingers in the corner somewhere, right? Like like in one of uh, my uh, earlier podcasts with Tom Good when we talked about um, how technology just really accumulates. It's, it's advancing, but you're just accumulating more and more and more of it. And so I don't care what organization you are, you're going to end up with like, these old legacy systems that are sitting managing some function of the business, some back office function, some something. And so you need some level of data orchestration and service orchestration to be able to, you know, loop that into your whole, you know, headless co commerce platform. Um, I'm curious, you know, how much of a need are you seeing that from your customer base and what are the roadmaps on that type of stuff? I would say we're seeing this a lot more now because, you know, the element I would call it differently is configurability, low code, right? Like, and, and mm. the point we were talking earlier, how do you minimize cost, right? So if you have a platform which allows you to configure um, and change the way you want to orchestrate your services is really, you know, it's, it's a, I would say it's, it's the, the real values there, right? Because you could have a developer come in and they can like look at like, okay, where is my item data? Where is my inventory data? Where is my... Uh, you know, or, or pricing and promotion data, combine them together to create an orchestration for, let's say, cart and checkout, right? It's it, it's really limitless, like what they can do with it, right? And that's where, you know, we have been really focusing on and saying, right, okay, how do we make this very configurable as opposed to, you know, having it, you know, being coded because that then requires changes and then you have to do dependency mapping and a lot of that work. And it's a very long cycle um, to deploy something. Whereas configurability allows you to, you know, go in there and change something and that, you know, if you have the right, uh, like let's say presentation layer as well, it's very easy to propagate those changes into your front end and, mm. and have the, 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 you know, the end consumer utilize that. So if I put my, myself in the mind of a, um, a head of e-com at an organization that's expanding globally or changing direction and I've decided that I'm now ready to move to headless e-commerce, how can I best prepare for that? Like what makes a, a, a good customer of yours? Like they can best prepare and best kind of map out a playbook. I think I would start with the, the problem statement. A lot of the times, right? Like when businesses go into these um, investment um, decisions or they want to change platform, they don't really understand why they want to do replatforming, right? Um, they just want know, to buy new technology. Like it's just new technology is yeah. fun. Fun, right? <laughs> you need to have a, a very clear, um, you know, problem statement, right? Like, is it, um, do I need to merge, right? As I, I was saying earlier, right? I have stores, right? I want to have that inventory available to my online customer. Is that a problem statement? Yeah. Mm. You start with that. Um, do I want to offer more better shipping methods and options, right? So all of these are, are, are problem statement which need to come, right? And then they, they need to be clearly tied to KPIs, right? What do I intend to do after that? Is it my, I'm growing my top line? Um, is it I'm reducing costs to make sure that my gross profitability is operating at a, at, at a level where I need it to be. So all of these KPI need to be tied with like conversion data, customer, um, you know, traffic, all of that, right? It needs to be, you know, put into a plan. And that's when you can really, you know, um, advise a customer. And that's what I, I would say an ideal customer profile would be. And sometimes we even go in, right? When our customers come, you know, come and they say, we have a problem, right? 
and we'll say, okay, this is how we, we would like to, you know, advise you. And, and then again, you know, defining that problem statement and putting it into, into a, a project plan, right, which basically ties it to each KPI and say, by the way, if you make this enhancement, right, your inventory, uh, you know, offering on your website will be real time. If you make a price modification, it'll be real time, right? And that's a change, mm. right? And what does that drive? That Does that drive, right? Like, let's say a customer for an ideal retailer, they were coming in and they were seeing a lot of, um, you know, customers coming in and not converting because the product was out of stock and you put inventory, but it takes 24 hours for that to show up on the, on the website, right? Now it's mm. real time, right? How much reduction have you seen in traffic dropping off from your website? So it's like that your top of the funnel conversion ratios. Starting with what the actual problem statement is, is yes. so critical. I see too many people just buy. It's human nature. You just want to buy new stuff, right? So I'd like to get into your head a little bit as a, as a that product manager mindset. Something I'm curious about, because at, at Groupon, you you had, you know, it's, it's more of the, the whole experience that you can own. Here, um, in a headless environment, people can kind of do whatever they want with your baby, uh, you know, with the modules that you provide them. And as I was thinking about this, one thing that always bum me about, uh, bums me out about more closed ecosystem products is when you're evaluating it, you're, I always tell my, my clients, hey, hey we're, we're evaluating not just off of the functionality, but we're evaluating based off of the team and the roadmap. Where are they going, right? And I think that applies to you guys as well. But in a more of a closed ecosystem, you know, if you really need a, a feature, the product manager might get pressure from enough customers, they'll put it in, and maybe sometimes it'll be like bare minimum just to kind of check the box so that when they're being evaluated, they could say, hey, we support X, Y, and Z functionality. But in evaluating a headless commerce or that's more module like this, if I'm evaluating it, if you guys don't check certain checkboxes of functionality, I don't know that I care that much because I can just plug in point solutions into that ecosystem. And I, I wonder how that changes your mindset as a product manager. Do you, do you, do you, does it cause you to like wait longer before you add a feature and really make it perfect? Or like, like, let me inside your brain a little bit on, on how that works. I think uh, that's a great question, right? Like, and that shift, right, is, is what I would call is like working for a technology company, which is just supporting one business as opposed to a SaaS, um, you know, offering. So in a SaaS company, right, like product managers really need to make sure that they, their features or what they're building is generic enough that it can support multiple use cases. They have to go across industries, understand, right, like let's say in manufacturing to like retail to food, um, you know, um, industry, like how does order management, how does, um, you know, orchestration of cart, right, what are the different feature sets, how does promotions apply, right, what are the different engagement um, you know, tools which you need to build on. So as a product manager, you have to think, you know, vertically and horizontally, you have to really go and see, you know, how your technology will be used and then um, determine it. Second thing is, right, it's very important when you release something, right, it is thoroughly tested, right, you need to ensure that it works, it's, it's, it's backward compatible with all your other services, right, like because you have multiple customers on your, on your tech stack, right, you, if you release something, which does not work, right? It can break things for your current customers and that could, the blast radius is huge. Whereas working for an um, individual company and owning a technology roadmap for that, it's much more easier because something happens, you go, you revert the chain. Over here, you know, it's it's expectation management across multiple or I would say thousands or hundreds of customers. So it's very important. So there's a lot of, uh, I would say, in-depth research which goes into when you're defining or designing a, a feature, right? You have to look at like, what would it do? What would, how would it increase benefits for your end 
um, you know, merchants and retailers using that technology. So, you know, sometimes we even go and, and look at like, how can we tie it to a KPI, right? Like we increase mm-hmm. uh, or we develop something on promotions. How are merchants using it, right? Like, are they seeing more engagement now because now merchants can offer better uh, deals to their, their customers, right? Is this really changing things for them? So that becomes very important. That's a very important feedback which needs to come back um, to us. And, and we try to, you know, go in front of the customer as much as we can to learn from them. Yeah. Take that feedback. The cross-industry aspect's got to be so difficult. I, I can't tell you how many e-commerce platforms that we've come across. And you look at a certain feature. So maybe I'm working with um, a fast-moving com- consumer goods company, and we're using the platform. And, and you look at some of the fu- an area of functionality, and you're like, oh, I bet this functionality was built only thinking about retail or sports apparel or something. Like You can, you can just kind of like sniff it out in there that this was not thought of cross-industry. Cross how do you... How do you even manage thinking about that many industries and use cases? So I think it's around, um, um, I, I would use the word um, again, configuration, right? We based a lot of that stuff, right? So for instance, in pricing, right? You have promotions, you have, um, you know, ability to create coupons. You, uh, how do you apply them across your assortment, right? Like, do you want to limit it to one brand, to one category? Everything is a, is a configurability, right? Like, so it doesn't go out to everything, right? Do you want to segment it across a set of uh, customers or a region, right? That is where the, the, the level we will go down to basically making everything configurable. So it's easier. So if merchants don't want to use it, they can switch it off. If they want to use it, they can use it against what is their target audience, right? Or their target um, assortment. Same with when you're setting up your catalog as well, right? Like, um, you know, a SKU um, in, in retail, for instance, is very different to a SKU in, let's say, furniture industry. Like, mm. it will have length, width, dimensions, um, also material. So how can you add attributes to your catalog data? That is configurable, right? So you can add the different number of attributes to capture that data, right? In the same way, in um, retail or fashion industry, right? Like, you have to have sizing charts. You have to have... Uh, you know, color and variation of the of the same item, right? So, you know, that is again configurability, you know, which allows you to basically build a catalog on that. Association between different types of products, right? Like I, I buy this product or I want to sell this, this product is associated or bundled with this product. So creating that, that again, um, you know, is configuration. So we think through what are the, the different use cases, how retailer can, can will be using our system. Of course, um, we cannot cover everything, but we try to do as much research and then um, I think the other part of it is extendability um, and scalability, right? Which is very mm. important, right? How do they build on top of those those headless APIs, right? What is the scalability? So we have to know our boundaries and limits that like, like you know, have we done enough testing? Uh, what is the, the latency within our API or what how much data it can render to the front end um, at, at what speed? So those are the things we really consider, right? Like when, when we're developing. I'm curious, do you, do you think much about some of the, like, how do you think about some of the data standards that are out there? So a long time ago, I worked with a company that was working on uh, GDSN, which is the, the uh, global data network for um, synchronizing retail data. And it was a very extensible XML model, and, but it, it ran into some issues because it's, man- it, I mean, anything that's managed by a standards body kind of always runs into issues. And then people interpret the standards differently, and then you end up with a bunch of, like, different you know, a Tower of Babel situation where people are just talking, talking different languages. Um, do you, do you think much about various data standards that are out there? How do you embrace them? Do you kind of create your own? 
So I think that's the, again, very good point, right? Like why, you know, headless covers? Um, because if you think the need for, uh, again, going back to replatforming, one of the biggest um, challenges is like, how do we manage data? How do we syndicate data? How do we, you know, import data from multiple sources, right? With headless commerce, that becomes very easy because there is a transformation layer, right? Which you can add, right? To transform data and you can clean it up. Having a good catalog allows you and with all the right, let's say, attributes, variation, captured, color, combination, skew, IDs, captured, right? You can really like, you know, syndicate your data to all sorts of different platforms to really um, you know, uh, maximize your fulfillment or maximize your offering. And that in, in conventional companies cannot happen, right? Even as simple as companies trying to go on Google PLA, right? Mm -hmm. They need to have like three things at, at a minimum. Otherwise, Google will not show their data or show their offering. You need to have a brand name. You need to have a SKU identification number so they can manage you across other retailers, right? Like so they can see what, where you're coming in and you need to have price and offering validated. So these are the things, right, which are very important to have. And, you know, as retailers are growing their business, they're finding more and more. And, and that's why, you know, they will go to a platform where data can be managed in a much more systematic way. Um, it can be, you know, configured across multiple different systems, right? You have a system which is purely for catalog management, right? You can manage where is your um, a catalog coming from, who is the, the vendor or the manufacturer providing that to all the way to a, a merchandising team owning a price um, pricing system where they can, you know, schedule pricing or manage promotions to a logistical team managing inventory because they are holding, they understand where the stock is, what is the positioning of your stock. Yeah, and not having your merchandising team have to worry about how exactly things work downstream, you know, and all the various, you know, data syndications that are going on. That makes a lot of sense. So what are you excited about most in this space looking forward? I think it's uh, uh, what really excites me is like I see every day there's something new um, which is happening. Like, you know, I'm excited to build stuff which really solves the problem for, for the merchants, right? Like how do they go across different geolocation? How do they extend their business, right? And that's what, like, when you go in, in a room and a merchant is explaining um, their problem and they're like, oh, I've got a solution for you. I can make your life really easy. An example I give you, we recently went live with a merchant where they had a, a use case of multi-sites and they wanted their customers to start a journey from one site and they add something to the cart and they would go to, to the, the secondary site and add something to the same cart and should be able to check out on either of the sites. So that was a, a nice. you know, for us, like was a very easy use case to solve for, for them. They've been struggling with it for, for years, right? Like trying to do that in-house. So, you know, that's what really keeps me going and exciting because building technology, which, you know, can some way or the other um, help, you know, ease out the pain um, retailers are seeing. It's so funny with, by not having a presentation tier, you're able to provide better user experiences and get, and get closer to the, the humans at the end of it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. It's just funny. Um, so, uh, always like to finish with something, a fun question, uh, throughout your, your years of experience, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think one thing which I would like to share is active listening as, as being a, a mm. technology company, as a product manager, you really need to listen, right? and understand what uh, the problem is, right? And I, I keep repeating myself, uh, you know, but I think that is the, the best advice I thought was to listen um, and then, um, you know, speak and, and, you know, absorb, right? Like, and then, you know, channel it, like break it down into sizable chunks. So I would say, almost say I, it, it, in order to be successful, I think active listening um, is, is very, very important. 
so easy yet so hard. <laughs> uh, very good advice. Furkan, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. No, thank you for having me, George. It was a really, really fun conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to C-Suite Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.